Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Glimpses, a CFAT podcast. I'm Josiah Corson, and we're excited to have you here today. Today, we're going to be looking at one of my grandmother's stories. This is the early days of them in Bolivia. My grandmother, Sarah Corson, and her husband, Ken Corson, decided to take the call of being a pastor and missionaries down into the jungles of Bolivia. They brought their four children, my father as one of them, down, and they spent two years ministering and pastoring people. But while down there, they saw there was a need, a need that was not being met, the physical needs of the people. And these were the early days and what sparked the idea of CFAT. So we hope you get something out of this and that you enjoy it. Blessings. Well, hello and welcome back. We're excited to hear another story from your grandmother. <laughs> Thank you, Josiah. I'm very happy to be with you again. All right. So this is, uh, I really enjoy this this story. Um, this is one that I've I've heard for a long time, and we use a lot here in our programming as well. But uh, we'll, we'll be excited to hear it from you. So tell us a little bit about our story today. Well, um, back in the 1970s, we were invited, my husband Ken and I and our four children, uh, uh, they were ages 10, 11, 12, and 15. Um, Karen, Tommy, uh, Kathy, and Chris. And we were invited to serve as Bolivian pastors of the Bolivian Methodist Church and live on a level with the people we were called to serve. And they wanted to send us out to the farthest church they had out into a jungle area, a little town, a village it was, of maybe two dozen huts uh, called Sepecho. And we were kind of in shock when we got there because, first of all, we couldn't take much, just what the airline allotted us. So we each had one duffel bag each. And when we got there... We had, uh, I think we had two or three more duffel bags that had some household things in it. Every time I hear this story, I'm always like trying to put myself in the shoes of my father. Um, (laughs) And I can't imagine being, what was that, 12 years old? 11. 11 years old and saying, here's a duffel bag. And what's that? How much would that hold weight wise? Like 50, 70 pounds, something like that? Uh, probably. I don't know. So, something along those lines and saying, all right, pack everything you need for the next two years. By the way, put your school books in there because you're going to need that as well. That's going to take up a lot of your weight too. Like that would, like, as an American, be a little bit on the scary side knowing I'm going to the jungle. And it's, you know, Phil, I, I don't know. It's just, there, there's a lot there. You know, you're forgetting. Leaving behind your from a lot of your friends, your school, everything, and we're moving down to a dirt floor, bamboo, thatch roof hut. There's a lot to that. Yeah, and it's an everyday thing. You don't just get out of it because we were two hundred miles and without a car to live on the level with the people which we had agreed to do. We would not have our own vehicle. As a matter of fact. Uh, we went to this little village. We were assigned to it uh, called Sapecho. And 
there was not a single person in the town of Sapecho that owned a vehicle. There was one road that got there. It went over the Andes at 15,000 or maybe 16,000 feet high. And then it went down these really steep uh, mountains down to uh, the Jungle Valley, about uh, 2,500 or 3,500 feet. So, um, Very steep mountainside coming down. Very steep and drop-offs like a mile below. It just takes your breath. And this road... That's what's convenient about the cover of this podcast is a picture of said road, so... Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, the New York Times called it the most dangerous road in the world. And so it it was just one lane, and there was two-way traffic and no guardrail. And it was ledged into the steep side of mountain cliffs. (laughs) I remember one time... I was going down in a bus, and it was kind of bus like a school bus that had the part that hung out behind the wheels. And I was on the back seat. And when you meet somebody, the person coming up had the right-of-way. And we were going down and met someone, so our driver had to back up till he found a place wide enough so that they could scraped by each other, and I made the mistake of looking out the back window into nothing because that back part past the back wheels was just hanging over the space, and it went down for half a mile or a mile. Jeez. It doesn't matter because when Either it Either way, there's no making it out of that. That's right. That's right. And uh, as... I looked out, and I automatically screamed. I thought we were going over. I didn't mean to, but it just came out. I mean, that's alarming, yeah. (laughs) The bus driver looked back and said, Shut up back there. I know what I'm doing. I've got two good inches yet. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, we may have had more than two inches, but that's what he said. We didn't have much. So, two inches between, you know, you being alive and you falling off a cliff, is still, that's not a lot of wilhorm. <laughs> that's right. Especially when you're in a bus. Yes. So, anyway, after it was really a scary thing to get us there, it was a 12-hour trip when we didn't have trouble. But once it took as long as 46 hours because we had six blowouts. Oh, my god! And had to fix the tires and patch them and all. And, and we got stuck a number of times, and everybody in the bus had to get out and dig with their hands. They had one shovel that they had they carried in the bus to dig it that the bus driver would dig out. But yeah. if you rode the bus, it was your responsibility if they got stuck. You're all to, in it together. We're in it together. And we wade the mud that comes above our ankles. And then with our hands, it's there are not many rocks in that. And so that's why they, uh, uh, you know, it's soft mud. And with our hands, we just dig it out. Yeah. We'd have to dig out. 
the mud between the two tires yeah. because it was the, what do you call that, a pole that attaches both yeah, yeah, wheels yeah, yeah. to it. You bottomed out and you had yeah, to. Yeah, okay. and we had to dig out the middle of yeah. the ruts. Well, anyway, we got to Sepetio that day in 12 hours, but even so, it was such a scary trip. And when we got there and they unloaded. One thing I'd like to also throw in there is, is the importance of why you're going down, uh, that this community, well, you go ahead and tell it, that they, they were on fire for God, but tell us why. Yeah, because there were nine people there that had started a little Methodist church in their home, and they had worked and built a little bamboo church, and they had six little benches. The benches were six inches inch wide boards one board and no back to it you know but uh, people would come and a lot of the women would bring blankets and spread on the sides of by the walls and sit on their blankets on the floor because there were not enough uh, there were only six little benches anyway I'm saying they had the Sepetio Methodist Church there and they didn't have a pastor. Nobody had ever pastored the church except the layman, uh, Abdon Paredes, that had started the church in his home. And they had begged the national church to send them a pastor for several years. And one of the people, one of the missionaries told us about it. And so we offered to go, and that's why we were there to pastor. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here as well, that the uh, the group there were also, um, there wasn't a ton of education there, so oh, none of them could read. That's that right. A few could read like on a third grade level yeah. or, or something, but most of the adults couldn't read. And they, in the last few years, they had just put in a elementary school there that went to the fourth grade. Mm. And so the children could read up to fourth grade level. Yeah. But uh, if they could get school, the ones that lived too far to walk, you know, there were no school buses, so yeah. they had to walk or not. So often they wouldn't send the children to school until they were maybe 10 years old or yeah. 8 yeah. Or something because they had to walk so far yeah. to get there, because so, these were homesteaders. Yeah, they had not the lived in this uh, place. Uh, no one had been living there before, um, and well, maybe a thousand years ago. But no one in written history that they knew about had lived there before. Although we did find some pottery when we dug fish ponds. A lot of from the Incas, correct? Right, uh-huh. But, <clears throat> but uh, anyway, when we got there and got our uh, bags off, everybody came running. We, we went on the back of a truck. They didn't have a bus but that day, but they had uh, supply trucks that would go down and take passengers and bring back um, what the homesteaders had grown. Uh, for food, they'd take it back and, 
for the capital city. And these are quite often your only lifeline as well. You are stranded down in the jungle, and if there's a medical emergency, it's you just hope that a vehicle comes by. You you're are so right. And sometimes there would go weeks when one could not come. I remember six weeks, no vehicles came. We were totally cut off in the rainy season Jeez. because there were so many landslides. Yeah. They couldn't get through that road, that 200-mile road to get to us. Yeah. But if if there if it wasn't raining, uh, sometimes we would have five or six vehicles a day hmm. that would pass. More often it'd be one or two or none. Yeah. And whenever there would be the sound of a motor, a vehicle, the whole town would come running and stand by the road to see because that was their only connection with the outside world because they didn't have radios, they didn't have televisions, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have clean water. We had to drink the water from the creek, and the homesteaders up creek from us had thrown their garbage in it. Mm. And so... You know, we had to boil the water before we could drink it. and So anyway, it was kind of a shock, especially for our children. Sure. Our children, Chris, Kathy, Tommy, and uh, Karen, were 15. Yeah, we went over. And 12, 11, and 10. And And, uh, at least I'm glad... They weren't toddlers, yeah, because they can handle the dirt floor, you yeah. know. And uh, <clears throat> but when we got there, they didn't have a house for us. They didn't even know we were coming because there were no phones. You know, cell phones were non-existent back then, and there was were no telephone lines. What year would this have been? This was nineteen seventy six. Nineteen seventy six. All right. Mm-hmm. And, well, no, it was 1977. It was in December of 1977 All right. when we went down. And so <clears throat> when we um, threw our duffel bags off and everybody had run, the whole population of the of Sepetio was not very many, like I said, about two dozen households. And everybody was standing around looking at us. They were mostly indigenous people, <coughs> like we often miscall Indians. Yeah. And and Ken said, fortunately, we could speak Spanish, and Ken said, hello, I'm your new pastor. And, oh, they were so warm and so excited. A new pastor, we didn't know you were coming. Well, come, let us show you the church. And they had not long before finished the little church. Yeah. It was very small by our standards. And like I said, had six benches in it um, and a little he had a platform where they had brought dirt in in toe sacks, you know, and 
dumped the dirt and then packed it down. They yeah. danced over it till they got it packed down so they could have a platform that looked like the churches did yeah. in the capital city. Uh, wasn't really important for a church. It's the people that's the church. But anyway, they wanted to do the best they could to make it how sure. they'd seen others. They had an altar made out of bamboo, and the little pulpit was also bamboo. No boards. They didn't have a um, sawmill or anything there. They had a, a, just one chainsaw yeah. or the whole town and they could uh, rent it and take turns using it to cut down a tree or something and it was if they wanted a board they'd cut down a tree and they'd start at the bottom the base of the tree and cut it with a chainsaw all the way up to the top of course they'd cut the limbs off first and then they'd come back and make another cut alongside of it, and then they'd have one board. Yeah. So that's that's if any it's a lot of work. It was you didn't make many things out of boards. It was too time consuming and expensive to rent the saw and get gasoline, which didn't they didn't have any gasoline stations. Sometimes they would bring fifty five gallons of gas down in a big barrel and siphon it in to whatever you needed it for but uh there were no real gasoline stations anyway it was in the jungle and you say jungle so i mean this is full on you know there's like jungle animals in these areas, oh, right? oh I mean, yes like you were we were full on in the jungle at this point. oh yes the trees every night the parrots would fly over Going to sloth loose. crawling down. And what, what did you say? You would have like a sloth crawling oh, down. Yes. You have all there, your monkeys and, in the trees. Oh, yes. And you hear them chattering in the trees. And and actually, our children had a pet monkey and a pet parrot and a pet tejon, they called it. I think it's a Cody Mundi yeah. in, in English. It looked had a tail like a coon. Hmm. Uh, ringed, yeah. you know, yeah. but it had a mouth like an ant eater because it would dig into ant holes and eat sure. the ants. <laughs> so, yes, so they had a lot of experiences like that. Every day was a new adventure, but it also was some new uh, scary things that sure. would happen, and people died. Uh, several people the first week we were there yeah that's what i was gonna say let's back up to that to the point where you guys you pull up and, and granddad ken he he says you know i'm your new pastor and they're excited right. so how, how does that play out from there so they took us to the church and they said oh we'll build you a house we'll build a parsonage if and ken said well where can we buy boards and nails and we knew it would be rustic, but we thought it'd be boards and sure. nails. And they said, well, Pastor, we don't have any of those. There are no nails here or anything. But if you'll build like we do, we'll build you a nice house. And they built us the nicest one in Sepecho. But it was one room, but it was about 
20 feet square. It was a big one. So we put some bamboo posts in the middle, and we bought from the local ladies some straw mats about six feet long that they had made out of uh, palm leaves. They had woven it. And then we tied them on with strips of bark, inner bark, of a tree that would bend, and then it would harden and stay firm. So, and we put up, you know, bamboo, um, I mean, the bamboo and the palm leaf mat to kind of be a room divider, put our, our boys in one place to sleep and our girls in the other. We had two of each, yeah. and Ken and me in the other. Yeah. And, of course, we had to cook and live and everything, and Ken in my bedroom there. Yeah. And our bedroom only had the the church did send them a, a double-decker bunk for the boys and one for the girls and sent us a double bed. It didn't have springs and a mattress, but it had boards in in on the bed uh, stead, and it had um, foam uh, mattress about two inches thick on it. Yeah. So, uh, and so we moved in. And How it, long did it take? So you started off living in the church for that first week, right? Oh, yes, until they got the house built. How long did that take? They they told us, put the the benches together. Of course, they didn't have backs, so it was easy to just slide them together. Said, And sleep on the benches. Don't sleep on the floor because sometimes snakes come through, boa constrictors or and uh, also uh, this kind of spider that was big as the palm of your hand that was poisonous. And they said, and there are Buna ants, Bunas, if they bit you, they were ants, big ants, and if they bit you, it would give you a fever, a real, you'd be sick for a day or two. And they said, sleep on top of that. Let's let's appreciate that statement for just a minute. You just showed up from America with your, you know, your one bag and your, all right, we're your pastors. Let's build a, where can we stay? And it's like, well, there's no boards and nails. You can sleep over here in the bamboo dirt floor (laughs) building. Just put the benches together because there's giant snakes, spiders, and ants (laughs) that could kill you or hurt you. So I'm sure that was a little bit jarring. Yes. Uh, it was, but we were ready for it. We had known it was going to be yeah. tough. You you were prepared. You were mentally prepared for that. We we felt that we were, but we still kept getting shocked at sure. how sad their lives were sure. and how much they suffered and yeah. how many people died around us. Mm. You know, it became overwhelming at first how many babies would die Mm. it was one in four during the rainy season in that town when you say when you say uh baby (laughs) what would be some of the age for that well up up to two years old Mm. i would say Mm. but especially uh, ones that were less than a year you know one in four but but the ones that overcame built up a resistance 
to because there was malaria, there was dengue fever, there was uh, 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 typhoid, yeah, a lot of things caused by polluted water or mosquitoes. Well, we had mosquito nets that we slept under, but there were vampire bats that flew through our house at night when we got it mahited because the bamboo wasn't. There were holes everywhere, you know. Sure. And <clears throat> so, but we were under the sleeping net, so we knew they couldn't bother us. Except one man from Weedowie came down. Actually, he was the editor of the paper here. Came down and spent uh, one summer with us volunteering to help. And he was so tall, his legs stuck out from... Under from, the net there, yeah. Uh-huh, and his, from his ankle down, he was asleep, and it stuck out. And when he woke up, there was dried blood all over his ankle, and he didn't know what had caused that, but there were two little dots on his One of the bats got in. Ankle. It was a vampire bat. They put an anticoagulant into the bloodstream, and when they have a razor-sharp beak that is so tiny like a needle that it won't um, prick the skin there. Yeah, it won't wake you up unless you're a very light sleeper. And they put the anticoagulant in the bloodstream so the blood will keep flowing till they suck all they want out Yeah, with their beak. And then they fly away and the blood flows until it washes out the anticoagulant. And then It'll clot, you know, and stop. Uh, that man uh, washed it off, and he was on his way home the next day. And he got here, and it got infected because that's the problem. If their beak is infected, it you yeah. know puts germs in it. And he got home, and no doctor could find out what the infection was or why they did, why his ankle had swollen up so. Until down in Lafayette, there was a nurse from Guatemala. Yeah. And she came in and took one look at it and said, Vampiro, vampiro, vampire bat, you know, because they were used to it there. Yeah. And, you know, in our town, many of the children died because they did not have $2 and a half to buy a mosquito net. That's what I was children. about to ask. I was about to ask is if the folks in the community, how many mosquito nets were they? Was this something that was common with the folk? But it was well, still- they knew about them, and they could get them in a little town 75 kilometers away, but they had to have money for it. Yeah, and like you said, two they and had, a half. They had other priorities, which was food, yeah. you know, and but some people that had been there a while and got enough and had mosquito nets. But children died. We had to bury them, mm. you know, that had died from vampire bats. Not just one time. It wouldn't kill you unless it was infected. Yeah, that but that kept sucking their blood so many times a month that the body couldn't rebuild it. Yeah. And, and then you're already dealing with so many who had anemia that's as well. Right. And so. You were so anemic anyway, that malnourished, that they died. But 
Anyway, let's go back to the first day there. Yep. And they said, come, let us show you the church. Well, well, one thing I'd like to throw out, too, I remember you've told me before, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I I remember you talking about getting off of your vehicle there and getting out. And I remember, you know, thinking, man, you know, I have this this one bag for me, you know, going to my father's position again. You know, it's like I got this one bag with all my stuff in it. And then getting off thinking you have so little and then looking in the community Yeah, what they said, yeah, the people, we thought, oh, we have so little. This is all we have for two years to live on because we promised two yeah. years there. And the people looked at us and said, oh, how rich they are. Look. Yeah. And we later went to their homes. They had no chairs or anything. Yeah. And the church had given us, by the way, a mahogany table and six chairs <laughs> because that was the cheapest wood down there. <laughs> but on this little dirt floor. And and we had two chairs for our living room to sit in. Yeah. And our bed and a desk and a little tiny bookshelf. And that was all. Yeah. That was all the furniture. But when we visited them, a lot of them only had uh, a piece of a log about a foot long on each side and a log lying across it. And they only had logs to sit on, like a bench made out of logs of a tree they had cut or something. So you've been there a week. Um, how long did it take? It took them about a week to build you your house? Yeah, a week or 10 days, I guess. Days, I, I can't remember exactly now. Lines. That was in yeah, 76, ago. you know, or 77. And uh, while they were building, everybody came to help. The whole community quit their work to come out and help. And... Um, they would gather the thatch from the palm leaves in the jungle, and they would cut these strips of bark off of a certain tree that would bend and were pliable so they could tie the bamboo together. It, the whole house was built without a single nail, and it it sure didn't take long to move in. And let me tell you, it was nice not to have to sweep <laughs> or vacuum because dirt it floor. was just dirt. But it would be dust if you didn't wet it down. and we'd, But the water, we'd have to bring the water from the creek. Your dad, Tom, said, oh, we had running water all right. They would hand me a bucket and say, run down to the creek and get <laughs> me a bucket of water. But uh, we would pour the water on the floor and then uh, jump up and down all over it and it would pack it and it became hard. Uh, the, the, the clay became hard. And if we had any water left over in a glass we were drinking, we'd just throw it on the floor because it would always be useful that way. <laughs> but let me tell you that, that week we were building the house Everybody was there, and the the women brought a big pot from the next door. Lady uh, had this Asunta. She brought her big pot, and they made a fire over three stones, 
and we gave them some money to buy what little there was available. There was a couple of grocery stores, and one of them was only about 10 feet wide, uh, about size of a, a small trailer, and they sold big bags of macaroni or spaghetti, pasta. The the supply trucks would, they found that would fill your tummy quick, and so it was unenriched white flour. They had long macaroni and short macaroni, and they had elbow macaroni and spiral macaroni. They had every kind of macaroni and spaghetti you can imagine that's how they varied their diet with the shape of the mm. pasta but they also had rice except at the end of the season before the new rice it would get mildewed uh, you know after a while they didn't have enough places to store it yeah so, and but you're in a jungle. I'm sure it's very humid as well. Oh yes, things. and and there's just two seasons: wet and dry. You know, and so anyway, you could get macaroni and a few things uh, there, but uh, they would cook for everybody because everybody spent all day building their parsonage bringing in even the little three-year-olds wanted to help and they'd go out and their dads would cut a bamboo pole and they would drag it back to the builders to put we learned our boys learned how to thatch a roof and all of those things learned it was a real education though they didn't get to go to school for two years but they did learn other things and they had their books they were trying to keep up with their class in them. And so anyway, that after we got moved into our house, it didn't take long to move in. I began to think, you know, why don't we live with fewer things? It's so freeing. I don't have to do a lot of cleanup because there's nothing to clean up. And... um. So we got moved in, and I walked next door. Next door was down a little path, and I couldn't see their house because of the vines that grew up all over the trees that gave us privacy from one house to the next. But there was a little trail through it. And Asunta had told me, now, I live down that trail, so when you get moved in, come to see me. So I did. And there she was. Her house was like a tent. She couldn't even stand up straight in it. It was bamboo and thatch put over it. But it wasn't a house with walls except made like a tent, uh, A-frame. And it was just big enough for them to have put a blanket on the ground and on a straw mat in there and sleep because they did not have their homestead yet others that had been there longer already had a better house built that you at least could walk into 
but they hadn't been there that long, and they had not gotten their homestead. That meant they had to hire out to the other homesteaders and get paid with some of their harvest and rice and stuff to have their food to eat. And so they they really were even poorer than the homesteaders. They were not even homesteaders yet, just laborers. They later became homesteaders. And she, their kitchen was outside, and she had three stones and the pot boiling water. And I looked in her pot, and I said, Sister, that's what they called each other down there. They felt very much that the body of Christ was real. If they were Christians, they felt, you're our family. And so I said, Sister, uh, what are you cooking for supper? And she said, Well, it's not a company supper. I wanted to invite you for supper some night, but... I don't have much, but there's enough of what I've got if you'll stay and eat with me. And I said, well, if there's enough, I'd like to learn how you cook Bolivian food and what you cook. I need to learn, too. And she said, well, good. You stay. And they did have logs around the fire where the children would come and sit down and the father and mother and eat together sitting on the logs. <clears throat> so the father came in, and I looked in in the water that was boiling. It looked just like water with a few little things floating in it. And I, I said, what is it going to be? What are you going to put in it? She said, well, sister, it's already in it. It doesn't look like much, but it'll taste good. You'll like it. She said, I have a chopped up onion in it and two cloves of garlic and uh, a spice that grows wild here, an herb that I picked that gives it flavor. And it was a delicious flavor, but it didn't have food in it except the onion and two pieces of garlic for the whole family. And I said, "Uh, you don't have rice from your homestead? And she said, well, we don't have our homestead yet. We will, we're due to get it in a few months from now. And then I realized she and her husband and the three children had worked all week volunteering to build our house, build us a nice house, much better than they had. And yet they were just eating onion soup for supper because they they had not been able to work out and hire out to get rice that day to eat. I just really felt like I said uh, the, to the man that usually was out working and, and Asunta too would work in the fields and I said oh brother Fermin you have worked too hard this week for us, for our house. I said, you have sacrificed too much so you don't have anything to eat tonight because you spent all your time volunteering to build our house. 
And Joe saw that man looked at me, and tears came to his eyes. He said, Sister, don't use the word sacrifice with me. He said, I know Jesus Christ. He said, we never had a pastor here, but a missionary came through and told us about Jesus. And as soon as I heard, I accepted him and became a Christian. And he he said, that has given us so much hope and so much joy in our life. He said, we just kept praying for a pastor, and now you all have come. You say, I've sacrificed. No, I haven't begun to sacrifice yet. And, you know, he proved that to us. For the two years that we lived next door to that family, whenever other villages farther into the jungle that did not have a church heard that Sepecho had a pastor, they would send requests. They would say, please send us your pastor to bring us the word of God. That's the way they would say it. But it was more than we could do because it took our full day just to find food for ourselves and to prepare it and to keep clothes washed and in the creek, we had to wash them in the creek, you know, and and it seemed like something was always happening. People would come to us for everything. Once one man came to us and said, Sister, do you have any pig toenails? And I said, No, I don't. What would I do with pig toenails? And he said, Well, you know, we always save our pig toenails, and I didn't know if you'd brought any with you or if you had any. I said, no, brother, what do you want them for? And he said, well, my wife had a baby, and she can't get her strength back. It's been two weeks, and she can hardly sit up. He said, but pig toenails, we grind them up into powder and make tea out of them, and that give strength back to you. That's like vitamins. Well, I learned that they usually had a reason for everything they did. And I didn't laugh at things as being superstitious because, after all, we eat Jell-O, and we say that has protein in it. And Jell-O is made out of cow's hooves. So maybe pigs' toenails have protein in them or something that they were lacking because most of them just ate solid rice, rice and yuca, which they call cassava, too. Yeah, yeah. And carbohydrates. Yeah. That was the only place we ever lived, and we lived in seven countries of Latin America, and that was the only place that did not have beans to go with the rice. But they didn't have seed to start them till we brought down we brought down 32 different kinds of bean seed. Mm. And all of them grew really well except uh, chickpeas and lentils. They need a cool climate, yeah. not the truck. And so the people right away were thrilled to get bean seed to go with their rice. But up till then, a lot of times 
the carbohydrate diet was the thing that really made them malnourished from lack of vitamins, even though they might get enough calories. Yeah. It made their immune system go down. Yeah. But anyway, that as long as we lived there those two years, and we still are in touch with Fermin. Asunta has since died. Mm. But uh, we go back. Uh, CFET sends people uh, to go back uh, down there on teams every year. Well, in COVID, we didn't. Yeah. But regularly. Regularly, right. we do. And, <clears throat> and Brother Fermin, if these villages would say, please send us someone to bring us the word of God, well, uh, we'd go to as many as we could. But we had all we could do right there yeah. in Sapecho with people. I remember one man came with his thumb cut off accidentally with a machete mm. just hanging on for a little bit of flesh <clears throat> and he said sister <clears throat> I saw you sewing I was him and uh, my daughter's blue jeans yeah. and and I'd taken a needle and thread he said I saw you had a needle will you please Jeez. sew my thumb back on Jeez. I said oh my oh my goodness you know, it's, I don't have suture in thread. He said, you have thread. I saw it in your needle. said, I think it'll heal if you'll sew it back on. He accidentally, with a machete, yeah. got it chopped off. I couldn't bring myself to sew his flesh together. Yeah. But our local leader, Brother Benho, yeah. came in and saw it. He said, oh, my, let's fix it, because there was no doctor. Yeah. And... He said, you've got a needle, sister. Give me your needle. It happened to have black thread in it. Well, he he sewed his thumb back on, and it didn't bend. The thumb wouldn't bend at the knuckle, but it grew back together, and at least he had that thumb yeah. to work with his against his fingers yeah. there, you know. So it was, it was just a different lifestyle, Josiah. Yeah. Now they are more developed than that because that was what we went there to bring appropriate yeah. technologies for the needs of the body and Jesus for the needs of the soul. And uh, I pastored the church in the next village and Ken, the, the church there, for two years until we had a group of people that were trained that could lead themselves. But this man, Fermin, um, any time a village called and asked for help, uh, with somebody, send somebody to give us a service, a Christian service, well, if we couldn't go, he would leave his work. Even I've seen him leave it in the middle of the rice harvest when the rains were threatening and he was going to lose part of his crop if he didn't work every daylight hour. But he would still go and share. <clears throat> and share around. what he had learned yeah. from Ken's preaching, you know. Wow. And so, Josiah, I will just say this. You know... We went to help them. Yeah. 
but they helped us more than we ever could help them. Mm -hmm. To put life into perspective, Mm -hmm. to see that we think things are so important that we have, you know, but the mayor of the town came to church and led singing barefooted. But he wasn't going to stay away from church because he didn't have shoes. Because it was raining, he couldn't get out to go to the next town to buy shoes. So he came to church barefooted and was not embarrassed because they look at what is really important and not what people are going to say about you or think about you. It's not really important in the big scheme of things a hundred years from now. You know, and it, it, it's it. They taught us so much. I remember at first I was afraid because two of our children just thought their world had come to an end because they had to go to Bolivia. Yeah, but they they didn't want to leave their ball teams, their friends here. Two of them thought it was a great adventure, but the two. That just thought uh, they didn't like it at all. The world is over. Woe is me. Yeah. It was your dad, who now is director of CFAT. And Kathy, his sister Kathy, who now is directing CFAT Costa Rica, that campus down there. So... Ken says there's justice in the universe. <laughs> they were the ones that thought about it. Tommy would say, why do I have to have these weirdos for parents that take me down in the jungle? I'll never have a child till I can provide for him like an American ought to be a, be provided for. Yeah. But he changed his mind after living there a bit. And they found, you know, that it was so they could do such important things that meant life or death for some people because they could read, because people, somebody would have a bottle of medicine, but they didn't know what it was for. Yeah. They just bought it on sale. And like one man came and said, please read me the directions on the bottle. Well, it was in German. It was German medicine. I can't read German, but they thought because we could read, we knew everything. And we didn't. We knew how little we knew. Actually, we would have died there if it had not been for those people who knew how to live in the jungle. They'd learned by many of them dying. And, And so they were right there to help us. Every minute of the way, my mother came down to visit us once when we were down there. And everybody in the town came to see her. And every one of them said the same thing. Don't worry about your daughter and her family being so far away because we are here. Mm. And they're our family. And Mm. we'll take care of them just like our own children. And they did. They did. They would give us food <clears throat> when they didn't have it. Yeah. You know. And so um, Tom and Kathy soon changed and were so glad that they were there. And one 
recently when they all came home for Christmas, one Christmas not too long ago, Ken asked them all, what was the happiest time of your childhood? And every one of them said, when we lived in Sapecho, because it gave meaning to their lives. They learned what was important and how they could help somebody else stay alive. You know, and that's what makes us happy when we can help someone else. So Sapecho taught us so much, Josiah. And there's still plenty of other stories we'll, we'll talk about in there later, yeah. too. But one thing I, I'll, I always, it comes to mind when I hear this, and it, it is very uh, convicting to me for us here in America, is, um, and not that this is a bad thing, and I don't mean this is a bad thing, but we so often feel so good when we go out and it's like I, I gave my, you know, my lunch hour or my weekend up to go and help so-and-so or do this, that, and the other. And then we see these folks who are just so on fire for God that they would work for a week and give up food for their families just so their pastor would have a home so they'd be able to hear about the gospel, how much they gave up. That's right. Um, that is so true. It's just... Um, I don't know. It's inspiring for for me, at least, to you know evaluate my life and and how I'm viewing that and that servant's heart there and how far they took that just in order to to hear God's word. So, um, oh, it's it's so true. Yeah, yeah. what you say. <laughs> well, thank you again for sharing your story and um, taking thank, this time. Thank you, thank you, Arlette. Of course. Till next time. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope this story reached you and blessed you in a positive way. If you're enjoying Glimpses and want to help keep this going and help support CFAT, this is an awesome time and an awesome opportunity for you. At the end of this month, November 29th, we have Giving Tuesday. This is one of the largest times of giving for us and really helps us get through the rest of the year and moving into next year. So if this is something that you want to help us out and help our ministry, I really encourage you to look into this and for this to be the time. We have many folks giving matching funds, so all that you would give would be doubled by someone else. So take a time, think about it. Um, This comes once a year. It's a time when we're constantly in the holidays buying things, looking for, you know, the next thing, and it's a good opportunity to slow down and see how can I give back. So we hope that you feel that way, and uh, either way, you are loved and blessed. We hope you all have a great week. See you next Friday.